we believe the future of power relies on the country or countries that will be able to accelerate innovation. On this episode of the Defense Scoop podcast, why it's critical for the U.S. to position itself as the leader in generative AI, and other takeaways from the Special Competitive Studies Project's new report. It's Wednesday, September 20th, 2023. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast, where you'll hear all about what's going on across the defense technology landscape. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. 11 House Republicans have formally requested a classified briefing with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and FBI Director Christopher Wray by October 6 regarding how the organizations they lead are working to counter alleged pursuits by China's government to spy on sensitive U.S. military and national security sites. In a new letter shared with Defense Scoop this week before it was disseminated publicly, the lawmakers cite recent articles in the American press to warn of what they view as Beijing's recent and intensifying expansion of espionage efforts to access secretive U.S. defense installations using human spies and technology. The letter comes after recent reporting that claims citizens of the PRC have gained or attempted to access military bases and other sensitive sites at least 100 times over the past few years. The lawmakers point to one case where potential agents infiltrated a U.S. Army test range, accessed numerous missile sites, and used drone technology to surveil the grounds, and another where, quote, individuals were found scuba diving in a location home to a launch site for U.S. spy satellites and other sensitive military equipment. In other news, the ongoing Ukraine-Russia conflict has made the Pentagon rethink the role cyber will play in war, namely that there won't be immediate payoff of effects, according to one of the DOD's top cyber officials. Mike Yang, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber Policy, told reporters on Friday during Defense Writers Group meeting that cyber has not played the role that many assumed it might on its own in the war. Instead, she said, it works best in tandem with other methods of deterrence. Yang concluded, I think that we are recalibrating how we think about cyber. You can read more about these stories and more at defensescoop.com. The Special Competitive Studies Project, which has continued the work of the now-dissolved National Security Commission on AI, issued its latest report this week on generative AI and its impact on the global competitive landscape. That report states, among other things, that recent advancements in AI come as transformations in geopolitical structuring resemble that of the days leading up to World War I. And because of that, the report says, quote, this moment provides the United States government with a unique opportunity to lead with conviction as humanity enters a new era. Ili Bayraktari is the CEO and president of the Special Competitive Studies Project, and he joins me now to discuss the major takeaway from SCSP's new report and the stakes at play for the U.S. as it looks to embrace AI for defense, national security and much more. Illy, welcome to the podcast. Good to see you again. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me again. So, Illy, uh, we've been following the work that uh, you have been doing for quite a while, and uh, 
you, you just released the report called Degenerative AI, the Future of Innovation Power. And I'd love to start there today. If you could tell me uh, a bit about some of the major points and takeaways in that report and uh, things that you found that stood out to you the most in doing that work. No, thanks, Billy. Uh, uh, so to answer your question, uh, the report was really inspired by Eric Schmidt, who is the chair of SESP, and the piece he wrote in Foreign Affairs last spring called Innovation Power. Mind you, this is the first cover page of Foreign Affairs that had a technology topic uh, as a cover. And so in that piece, Eric really argues that the nations that will stay ahead uh, you know, going forward are the ones that are able to create and foster the ecosystem where the private sector, academia, and government continue to innovate and build the next generation technologies. We agree, you know, at the SCSP, we believe the future of power relies on the country or countries that will be able to accelerate innovation. And AI is a catalyst to that. Just as a, just as a reminder, one of the most powerful models that was released was not released by United States, China, or any EU countries. It was released by UAE and its model called Falcom. So the innovation is going gonna, is gonna to come from places that you know were not traditionally considered innovative in the past. So we just have to be mindful that we're entering a new space. And as Eric argues, though that country that uh, has innovation power, that country will continue to, to, nom to dominate in the future. Uh, to your question about our report, we provide two overarching principles. The first is that we got to treat generative AI as a national security issue. When you look back at our history, really, uh, you know, Washington always put weight behind technology like nuclear weapons and electricity because of their importance. And Washington provided a vision for success. I believe we're now in a similar situation with generative AI. The ability to develop and deploy advanced AI systems can enhance a nation's strategic advantage. It will deter our potential adversaries and it will ensure our national security interests are protected. The second principle we argue is that we have to admit that we are in a platform competition against China. While you know its current generative AI models, the Chinese generative AI models lag behind our or United States platforms, the People's Republic of China is among a very short list of nations capable of building and deploying frontier large language models or FLLMs. Generative AI is opening a new front in the technology competition, we're entering a new era of uncertainty. And we argue in the report that America must actively engage in these platforms battle to ensure that our national security, economic prosperity, and societal well-being are protected. Well, Ilya, it seems like the stakes are pretty high with uh, uh, this sort of um, race for for or or, or con contest for AI uh, dominance or or I guess um, uh, leadership globally between the the U.S. and China. But um, you know, I, I I'm interested to talk more about the generative AI notion. It, we've seen it has picked up a lot of momentum in the past year. It's honestly not something I've heard a lot about until the past year. Uh, but a lot of officials in government, particularly some DOD officials, are a bit skeptical about its potential. So I'm curious, you know, in the report, what made you decide to focus specifically on generative AI? And I'm, I'm curious if, if some of those findings kind of lead you in a direction to maybe um, uh, go against what some of those DOD officials or give you more 
kind of credibility that this is the future of the direction that AI is taking? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Billy. And as you know, uh, we've been involved in AI, so like world for the last five or six years, first with the AI Commission that Congress created, and then with the Special Competitive Studies Project. Um, you know, I've watched this space really evolve over the last year. And every time some skeptics would say that we have reached so like another AI winter, some new platforms, some new innovation would come out and really take us by surprise. And I think generative AI was that last one that took all of us by storm because it a talking point among everybody, among different generations, people start using it. Some of the analysis I saw that, you know, 60% in workplaces have already used it one way or another. And so, you know, give, when you think about this technology that was just released last November, you know, it is normally powerful. It's transformative uh, on one end. Um, you know, one of the data points that we use in our report is that I think it took Gmail to get to 100 million users five years. And I think it took OpenAI three months to get to 100 million users. So, I mean, the scale and scope of these new platforms is just enormous and so powerful that you cannot ignore it. Um, to the DoD officials who are skeptical about the potential of this, um, I think you got to view it in broadly in terms of where is the AI evolution going from here. And I think generative AI specifically has, in our mind, four areas that I think DoD can benefit from. One is decisional advantages. I think we would argue in our report that the Department of Defense would be better served by using these models because it will provide you know, all people at all echelons with more options to consider. I don't know if you've ever used one of these models, Billy, but like if you say like, hey, give me options for any problems that you're facing, it's gonna give you five options. Humans usually would think about three or four, but yeah, I think these models give, will give you more options to contemplate and you analyze. So I think it would help, you know, uh, the the leaders in the building really who struggle and grapple with decisions have a broader appreciation for the options that these models will provide them. Uh, we argue that the second options that the DOD would benefit from these models is by uh, helping them enhance operations. A uh, couple of areas here we identify as number one is logistics. Obviously, it would help streamline logistics prioritize, deprioritize, you know, how the Department of Defense does logistics. The second area would be the global force management. And I know the building has really explored this area in the past, but as you know, uh, the Department of Defense is involved in deploying capabilities and people um, in daily basis. And I think these models can help with, you know, providing uh, prioritization, investments areas that we need to focus on more, divestments areas. Uh, so that is the second category we argue in our report we should focus on for DoD. Third area, talent. Obviously, uh, these models open up a completely new area for how you train, how you cultivate talent. And I think the Department of Defense, because it's in a business of really creating talented individuals, uh, you need to have new processes, uh, new courses on play to, you know, what the future entails. Because, you know, what while coding was like, as you know, a really appealing profession a couple of years ago, it seems to me now with large language models, you're entering a new uh, space of new requirements. You know, prompt engineer would somewhat, some would argue might become like the second most popular profession out there. So we need to be able to provide our men and women in uniform with all the skills necessary to conduct their, their work. 
And then the last area is the new defense measures, whether it's in cybersecurity, bioweapons, all these things, you know, large language models open up a new set of threats uh, for our Department of Defense. Uh, at the same time, we should be able to uh, red team these models, uh, find, uh, you know, weaknesses. We know hallucinations are a big problem. Uh, and so I think as new threats emerge from these new models, I think our Department of Defense should be able to understand these threats better and, and, and be prepared better to address these threats. There's a lot of interesting use cases there that you mentioned. So thanks for that, Ily. Um, I'm curious, though, you know, the report sets out a number of principles and objectives that should be uh, up front and center for the U.S. as it's on this journey to um, adopt more AI and generative AI. And I'm curious where the nation is now in relation to those and how uh, how should it go about uh, doing those things so that it can successfully meet those objectives and principles? Uh, so in addition to principles, Billy, I mentioned earlier, which were like, this should be a national security issue. And the second one is that we should really compete more effectively in the battle of platforms. Um, we argue that we need to have two objectives going forward and three moves to achieve those objectives. The first objective is really that in coordination with our allies and partners, we need to lead AI innovation and set the rules of the road. While we were struggling in Washington to find the way in the rules of the road uh, category. Europeans have provided their vision about how they see this going forward. China on paper has some of the best laws in this space, but we know how they implement those laws in practicality. So we are at the pivotal moment where we have to be proactive in establishing a framework of rules and norms in order to thrive in a world characterized by shared values. The second objective we argue is, again, always closely with allies and partners, we need to work to avoid a destabilizing AI arms race. The potential of these weapons and a global arms race is real. We should not ignore it. There are countries out there that have doubled down, primarily China, in getting ahead in these technologies. And so we must work together to, to promote transparency, trust, and collaboration to mitigate these risks. We never want to end up in a situation in which we will end up in some kind of an escalatory situation because we don't understand. We haven't talked to each other. There was a lack of transparency in how you know countries around the world have adopted and employed these kind of capabilities. Uh, so to achieve these objectives in our report, we argue that number one is the United States should set the condition for leaderships. The United States has always driven when it came to technology rules of the road. This is another time in which the United States should lead. Uh, the second objective should be that uh, we should shape the terrain of AI development and impact. The third objective would be accelerate implementation of AI, you know, by government agencies. Uh, as I said before, um, United States has always led the technological revolution so far. Um, we risk our advantages if we don't move fast enough in this space. Um, I don't think we should be paralyzed by a desire to eliminate every risk. That will be nearly impossible. So we have to find the right balance to harness the opportunity to develop a positive vision and create a global framework to how we address the threats and how we promote our shared values.
Yeah, and I think that point's very interesting, sort of the balance between risks and the opportunity. And um, especially when you compare and contrast the U.S. with China, who's certainly not, uh, you know, doing things the same way the U.S. is in terms of managing risk and looking to do so responsibly. Uh, And there's actually an interesting compare and contrast section within the report between the U.S. and China. Um, And I'm curious just to dig a little bit more deeply in that comparison. What's the biggest difference between between the two nations and how they're approaching AI today? That's a great question, Billy, but I think like fundamentally, these are two different cases and it's really hard to provide a clear net assessment. Um, I know a lot of people have tried really to compare uh, our status of AI versus the United States. As you know, we did that work with the AI Commission. We did it last year when we issued our first report. And honestly, I believe based on all the unclassified available information, last year's report provided a clear picture of the status of AI adoption, both here and in China. Uh, What we argue in the report we just released on generative AI specifically is that at the moment, the majority of platforms that have been released, these large frontier models, are US platforms. And I mentioned one coming out of UAE. That said, other countries are releasing different models. One country, as I mentioned throughout this interview, that has all the ingredients to be a serious competitor, and we know this from recent history, is China. We have seen what they've done in other areas of technology development, so it shouldn't surprise us that with the top-down leadership they have, with enormous resources they have provided in this space, and the investments in talent they have done over the years, uh, you know, they can come up nearly close with our models. They have, however, few disadvantages. Uh, They have the data disadvantage since the majority of the large language models rely on text as an input and Mandarin is less than 10% of the predominant language of the internet. English is 60% of the dominant language of the internet. So their ability to access data from other apps such as TikTok could help them close that gap. Holistically, although we are leading United States companies and US is leading in this space, China should not be underestimated. We see that they are going through some serious economic challenges, but because they put technology at the center of competition and they view it as a solution to how they can achieve their global commanding heights, as they say, you know, we should take them seriously. They are organized for this competition. As I mentioned, they have dedicated resources towards this issue and they have serious companies. They are at the forefront of this issue. That's very interesting. And I I think it will definitely keep an eye on that. And, um, you know, I I think it's been very interesting here on the home front to also keep an eye on, um, you know, there's been this mass worry uh, uh, from Americans uh, about artificial intelligence in the hands of the U.S. military. And and obviously that's sort of stoked by science fiction and a lot of the movies and entertainment that have come about in decades past. But, you know, there's been some real concerns, especially as, uh, excuse me, some projects like Project Maven and others uh, have come about in the past. And so I'm curious now that we have this influx of, uh, you know, AI within the U.S. military and reports such as uh, SCSPs coming out. Are we past the point about worrying 
about AI in the hands of the U.S. military? And um, if not, how can the DOD effective com- effectively communicate why it's necessary at this point to go all in on AI or risk, you know, uh, being in a place where other nations, some of our biggest competitors have an advantage over the U.S. in this domain? Um, so great question, Billy. And I think this issue, as you as you said, it has been really at the forefront of many people for many, many years. I think, as you said, uh, I think movies have helped steer the, the imagination <laughs> among us of um, how we can use these kind of technologies for particular, you know, scenarios. I think we're far from those uh, scenarios right now. Uh, do I think people have to be concerned? Absolutely. You know, we live in a democracy. You know, um, I think people have seen what has happened with social media platforms for the last couple of years. So uh, every time we have countered a new technology revolution or transformative moment, you know, people have reacted in different ways. There's a there's an overly optimistic camp about uh, these kind of technologies. And obviously there's a camp that is really concerned. Um, you know, the, one purpose of the report we published this fall is really we wanted to provide a clear-eyed view, and I and you know our team said, look, this is going to be this is going to be a transformative technology, probably once in a generation we're going to encounter. But at the same time, we should be able to address a lot of these concerns that we have encountered by previous technologies that can help enhance our societal you know uh, prosperity. Um, I think. Uh, you know, from a military balance of power and hard power equation, I think generative AI is one of those technologies that's going to raise a lot of eyebrows between, you know, among our adversaries, because when you look at it is our companies that are really at the forefront of this. Uh, so yet again, our adversaries will try to either steal, use. I mean, there's a lot of conversation now about the open source and um, open source models that are being released. Um, and so how can state and non-state actors take these models and really use it against us? How do we, uh, how, how can these models create a potential for strategic imbalances and vulnerabilities in areas of autonomous weapon systems and cyber attacks? So I think we all have to be mindful of how this technology evolves and all the guardrails we can put in place. I'm always uh, optimistic that our Department of Defense uh, really understands these things. And, you know, they've established a task force uh, called Lima in August that I think it really signals a recognition uh, of the leaders in the Department of Defense on the importance of this technology for national security, but also what needs to be done so we can take it in a responsible and ethical way. Um, I don't think we can expect something like that from countries like Russia and China. Uh, while our Department of Defense has always been transparent about the ways they want to plan to use AI for military purposes. We have never seen anything uh, similar from Moscow or Beijing. Um, But at the same time, you know, like uh, when people talk about AI for military purposes, people usually jump to the the most riskiest scenarios, which is, you know, killer robots, Skynet scenarios. Um, In our NSCI report, we argued there are four categories of AI for what in DoD? The first category, which I think this is what generative AI most most of the benefits coming out of generative AI can follow are the sort of like the back office responsibilities. You know, streamlining a lot of admin logistics, bureaucratic back office work. You know, timesheets, travel sheets, all these things that I think private sector has utilized this technology for a long time. 
The second category is really what we have argued was the indications and warning category. You know, all these models can go through a lot of data, a lot of training data, and can provide you with like what what's what's there and what's important right away. And I know with the you know the amount of data that our intelligence community now has to handle, these models can help them really streamline their operations. You know, provide some of the analysis as a starting point. We will always have humans that will provide the ultimate analysis to the president and the policymakers, but ultimately they can sift through a lot of data and provide that you know analysis for the humans to take it forward. The third category is something I mentioned earlier: is the decisional advantage. Uh, all these models can come up with more options than human brains can. So I I envision the next couple of years as an area in which we will work with a co-pilot. You know, you will do work, you will consult your model, the model will help you find your gaps in your analysis and give you new ideas that you never thought about it. I use it daily for those purposes, Billy, and I'm sure many, many other people are using it. So I believe our men and women in uniform should be able to use the same capability. Uh, and then the last category, which I think is probably the most sensitive is all the whole issue of like, how do we use AI? for uh, you know, mission execution. And I would argue that it is still unclear how the department will be able to use generative AI for weapon systems. I think this is one of the areas that still needs to be determined. I think for the back office responsibilities, this is a no-brainer area, but like how do you embed generative AI for weapon system? I think this is a still you know, to, be, to be determined category that I think we will have to see and observe for years to come. So, Illy, with the time we have left, I, I'm curious, uh, you know, that that kind of shares the, the perspective of, you know, the, the fear of some Americans that, you know, if AI is in the hands of the U.S. military, what could go wrong? But what about the opposite? What if we don't, uh, you know, invest or adopt AI as we should and and others that are, are you know, peer great competitors do, what are the consequences of us falling short in, in that competition? Yeah, so look, Billy, when you look historically, every new technology has provided an economic prosperity. Um, you know, if you look at the analysis now around generative AI, almost all analysis like account for like trillions of dollars added to the global economy. So ultimately, if our country is not able to get some of that economic prosperity of this technology, we will fall behind in economic prosperity. Um, we will face job losses because a lot of jobs, if we are not able to transform our labor and reskill them, will ultimately be hit domestically while our other countries you know, will move forward. Uh, the economic prosperity will really impact national security. And I think that's one area in which you know, our Department of Defense has always been at the forefront of adopting new technological, you know, uh, new logical inventions for the purposes of our national security and our national defense. And I think AI is, as I said at the beginning, that transformative technology that I think we should, A, analyze it, and then B, seek ways to adopt it faster for the national security purposes. And so... This is a decisive decade of the national security strategy issued by the Biden administration says, because not only we're facing this time where this powerful technology is emerging, 
but also this is happening at the same time we're facing a serious competitor and that serious competitor unlike the soviet union there was a military competitor this this competitor is a full domain competitor and also and they have put technology at the center of competition and ai is one of those technologies that i think is going to be central to this competition so we cannot risk failing behind i think we should move forward while understanding risk and promoting our values. I think America leads, and I think while leading, we can bring our allies and partners together. But I think this is one of those transformative moments that we cannot risk from behind. I think that's well put, Ily. Uh, and, and as we close out, I, I, I know that um, later this week, you have your Global Emerging Technology Summit, and there's some big names speaking at that from the global tech and national security community. Uh, what do you hope to accomplish? And for those listening uh, to the podcast, what can they hope to see at that event? Uh, so yeah, uh, Billy, this is the third Global Emerging Technology Summit we are putting together in Washington. From the first one, our purpose was really to bring together government, private sector leaders from our country and our allies and partners to discuss the future of geopolitics, technology, and democracy. Uh, when you face a competitor like Shana that has a civ mill fusion, uh, we have to be able to bring, you know, in our democratic society, all these communities, whether from private sector, academia, and government, together to talk about these technologies, to talk about the future of geopolitics, and ultimately to, to talk about the future that it's upon us. And I think the time is really right. I'm really heartened by the level of people that are coming to speak. It is an indication, and I think to a certain degree, a recognition of the work we have done with SESP. And I look forward to the conversation on Thursday. Well, Ily, always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, you have a great insight into this space, and I'm sure we'll continue the conversation over time as this becomes more and more of a matter in the Department of Defense and for national security. But for now, we'll, we'll cap the conversation there. But again, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Billy. You can learn more about generative AI for U.S. national security at defensescoop.com. And now for this next segment, I'll pass it over to my colleague, Wyatt Cash, for an interview with our sponsoring partner, Google for Government. I'm Wyatt Cash with Scoop News Group, and joining me today is Jason Bird, product manager at Google Cloud, to talk about how defense agencies are modernizing operations with edge compute capabilities. Google for Government is a Defense Scoop podcast sponsor. Uh, so, Jason, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here, Wyatt. So I'd like to start by asking, can you share how defense agencies are looking at integrating edge compute and what is critical to meet their mission objectives? Sure thing. Uh, I've had it described to me uh, as edge at three distinct levels, uh, the strategic, the operational, and the tactical. Uh, each one of those levels, there's different decisions that need to be made. Uh, and at the tactical level, there's more and more data available than there has ever been before. Unfortunately, you still don't have a lot of time to make sense of it. Uh, compute at the edge uh, needs to help rapidly triage that data to aid decision makers and then enable that data to be moved up to those higher echelons for further analysis. Uh, to perform that function, I think it's critical that applications uh, be developed and deployed at any of those three levels as uh, seamlessly to the user as possible. 
So I understand edge compute, you know, also requires some physical infrastructure. How is the DOD looking at bringing edge compute to remote mission operations? Uh, so I think if we stick at the strategic level, uh, we see infrastructure deployed in, you know, say a large combatant command uh, somewhere outside of the U.S., uh, it's pretty robust. Uh, you probably have something, uh, some hardware, enough hardware uh, that's about a small data center, uh, or maybe a, a few server rooms. At that operational level, you probably have more. Uh, it's probably at a more forward location. Uh, there's still some connectivity back home. It may not be consistent, um, and you may have room for a few racks worth of equipment. Uh, at that tactical edge, you're probably looking for something that's about three to five, five servers, preferably something that can be carried by a couple of uh, servicemen. Uh, and uh, you should expect zero connectivity back home. Of course, there's always uh, handheld devices that should be taken into account as well. Uh, each one of those levels is also going to come with its own, you know, maintenance and operations tail that does drag on each one of those units uh, as you kind of progress. So I'd like to shift to security concerns. How can DOD leaders ensure that you know data security as they they expand their cloud computing operations to the edge? So I think it's easy for best data security strategies to really fall apart at the edge, especially if data and applications can't provide the capabilities that end users need. Uh, that's when you start to get uh, exceptions to policy and uh, security vo vulnerabilities start to open up. Uh, it's easy to buy a new appliance when you need a capability and deploy it to the field. Uh, but then each time you do that, you're adding new hardware, uh, and then you increase the surface area that uh, IT uh, professionals need to manage and secure. Uh, customers don't need to be constantly adding new kit in the field uh, to get new capabilities. Uh, they need new capabilities from the kit they've already deployed. Uh, so if, capa if capabilities can be consolidated to standardized hardware form factors, you can start to decrease that surface uh, area that you need to protect. Uh, DoD leaders should be pushing for cloud capabilities on-prem and at the edge that can provide that foundational architecture to deploy modern technologies, but also help consolidate that security posture. So I understand that um, you work in Google distributed cloud-hosted environments uh, at Google Cloud. Can you talk about how uh, Google Cloud GDCH offers um, you know, additional layers of protection to protect data at the edge? Uh, so GDC uh, hosted, uh, first and foremost, uh, adheres to those government standards that everybody's familiar with. We use uh, FIPS certified hardware. We're employing encryption at rest and in transit. Uh, we're also using OEM vendors uh, that defense customers uh, already trust and use today. Uh, we, we believe that it, that not only helps with just accreditation processes and authorities to operate, um, but you know it builds trust uh, with the operators of the equipment itself. Uh, also. Uh, GDC hosted uh, takes advantage of open source software wherever it's possible. Uh, we believe that provides the customer with an added layer of transparency. It also gives them the additional freedom uh, if they ever decide uh, to move off of our platform. Um, governments should not only have secure data, but they should have the freedom to do with it what they want on whatever platform they decide. And then lastly, Jason, how does Google Cloud GDCH help defense agencies overcome many of the challenges that they are facing today, particularly as they move to sort of joint operations? Sure. Uh, so uh, as we kind of touched on earlier, I think DOD customers are challenged with 
manage and maintenance at, at of ed infrastructure, you know, at, at every level we kind of touched on. Uh, in a joint environment, that makes it, uh, that compounds it even more. Uh, so you have uh, multiple, multiple organizations that are bringing their own uh, hardware that they trust, uh, and it, it becomes more and more difficult. Uh, service members should be focused on achieving their mission, uh, not maintaining patches uh, or pushing updates to infrastructure. Uh, GDC Hosted is meant to serve as a managed platform uh, that meets those strategic priorities uh, and eases the IT burden of operational and tactical units. Uh, it, it's bringing the latest AIML services that Google is known for uh, to that point of need and eases the uh, burden of software security patching and updates uh, through our managed platform. Uh, this isn't a static system either. Uh, we're continually bringing new services and capabilities to it. Uh, so our edge uh, customers uh, won't be behind the technology curve. Terrific. Well, Jason Bird, thank you so much for joining us here and talking a little bit about how defense agencies are modernizing their operations with edge compute, uh, edge compute capabilities. So really appreciate you joining us. All right, thank you for your time, Wyatt. The Defense Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Defense Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin Fisher help put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll be back again with a new episode soon. Until then, thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Billy Mitchell.